it's this system which is sort of a, a mafia that that runs Lebanon um, that is really really difficult to break. They've got a, a strong grip on on the country. Lebanon is in crisis. In a recent report, the World Bank has said that Lebanon's economic crisis may be one of the three worst economic crises since the mid-1800s, and estimates that more than half of Lebanon's population is living in poverty. The reality on the ground in Lebanon for many of the countries vulnerable, from food and medicine shortages to hours-long gas lines, is simply devastation. But beyond just economic crisis, Lebanon is undergoing both political and societal crises as its inhabitants seek to cope with, recover from, and answer for the enormous explosion that leveled downtown Beirut exactly one year ago today, August 4th, 2020. In today's podcast, we discuss these compounding crises shaking Lebanon and its people and seek to answer how this has happened and what may lie in Lebanon's future. Joining us today to discuss is Will Todman. Will Todman is a fellow in the Middle East program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. His research focuses on humanitarian issues, displacement, and conflict in the Middle East. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Will, thank you so much for joining us today on the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So to get us started, Lebanon is undergoing an extremely dire economic crisis. The World Bank recently said that its crisis may be one of the three worst crises since the mid-1800s and estimates that more than half of Lebanon's population is living in poverty. So while it's extremely complex, we were wondering if you could overview for our listeners kind of some of the primary factors that have led to Lebanon's economic collapse. Why is this happening? Absolutely. Um, so the World Bank have said something else, actually, which I think is is uh, answers your question, which is that this is a deliberate crisis. And for the World Bank to say that, that's something, because they usually try really hard not to get into uh, domestic political affairs or to, or to take uh, a strong stance on things like that. So um, yeah, they have openly said this is a deliberate crisis, which the Lebanese political elite have brought about. And so I think at its core, this is a crisis of mismanagement and corruption. So on the mismanagement side, Lebanon has basically been spending beyond its means for decades. So the government has uh, piled up debt um, and then has borrowed new money to pay off creditors. So this is kind of like a a national Ponzi scheme. Um, And and I think it's important to remember that Lebanon actually produces very little on on its own. Um, It doesn't have a lot of exports. There's not a lot of, um, not a huge amount of of trade that goes on. Uh, But it really has relied a lot on, on people from overseas pumping money in. So part of that is from remittances from wealthy Lebanese expats who live abroad or Lebanese who are working abroad, uh, but also from tourism and from services. But that system couldn't hold. Uh, And I think particularly from the early 2010s, 
uh, things really started to to go downhill in Lebanon uh, because those sources of external money started to dry up. So it didn't help that there was the conflict going ne- uh, going on next door in Syria, um, and that affected trade. That's Lebanon's only land trade route is is across Syria because uh, it doesn't have um, any trade with with Israel to its south. Uh, but I think then also it deterred tourists. There was a fear that the instability from Syria would spread over into into Lebanon, and that deterred tourists from coming. But it also deterred investment. Um, and then another source of sort of international support, which which dried up, was aid. And Lebanon has relied a lot on aid, especially from the Gulf, from Arab Gulf states like Saudi Arabia. But uh, after the the Syrian conflict, and I think sort of generally in in the 2010s, um, Iran has really expanded its influence through Hezbollah in Lebanon, and that has made Arab Gulf states think that they're not getting um, a return on their um, on their investment. So they have started to cut back on that uh, on, on that aid as well. And so all of this caused Lebanon to get one of the highest debt uh, to economic output ratios in the world. Um, I think by 2015, it had reached the third highest level. So massive mismanagement going on, spending far beyond their means, and then endemic corruption as well with the, the sectarian system of government. And Will, I, it makes it see. I mean, it sounds like we could have an entire course on uh, understanding the economic factors or behind the current crisis in Lebanon. So thanks for breaking that down in a really su- succinct manner. One thing I do want to ask you, though, is oftentimes I feel like it's very easy to kind of get caught up in numbers, but not really be able to imagine what that means. So I want to ask you if you could provide some anecdotes for our listeners of what the economic crisis actually looks like on the ground in Lebanon for some of its, you know, the people living in Lebanon and its citizens. So I'm really pleased you, you asked that because I think this is something that completely gets lost behind the numbers. And I think journalists do a good job of highlighting sort of the personal impact of it. But I think think tanks, um, of which obviously I'm a part of the think tank community, we don't do um, as good a job as we should on actually saying what this means for for sort of normal people on the ground. And I think the the honestly the the impact is uneven. Um, the impact of the crisis is uneven in terms of sectors of the economy, but it's also uneven in terms of the types of people it impacts. So. There are some people who are, many people, in fact, who are still going out to restaurants, still going out to bars in Lebanon, and who are uh, getting by okay. It's not like every aspect of daily life has been interrupted. But for more vulnerable people, um, so many aspects of daily life have become a real struggle. And even the most basic tasks have become a real struggle. So... Three quarters of families in Lebanon don't have enough food or don't have enough money to buy food now. So that affects the most basic things from when when you're trying to go to the supermarket 
um, is there going to be food there on the shelves that you need to make whatever you're used to making? Um, or if it is on the shelves, can you afford it? I mean, there was a case, a, a supermarket worker was complaining that inflation was happening so rapidly that he was having to go around, relabel all of the prices of, of, of food in the supermarket. And before he'd finished, uh, inflation had, had increased so much that he had to go and start again. Uh, so, so this is really, I mean, we're heading towards hyperinflation. Um, there are things like, uh, gas, there are queues for people queue for hours and hours to get gas for their cars. Uh, electricity is a huge issue in Lebanon. Again, this could be the topic of a, of a whole podcast on its own. Um, when I lived in Lebanon, there was a daily power cut of three hours a day, but it was on a schedule. So you knew exactly when it would be and it, it rotated throughout the day. So you just have to plan your life around it. You know that you don't want to be planning a Skype call during time when there's going to be a, a power cut. Uh, but um, now there are parts of Lebanon which regularly have 22 hours of power cut a day. So literally only two hours. So that means that food in your fridge is likely to spoil, especially right now. It's it's incredibly hot in Lebanon. It's the summer. And so it's really difficult uh, to, to keep food. Um, it's difficult to sleep at night, I think. It's certainly difficult to... Uh, to, to, to plan anything in terms of work. I mean, we wouldn't be doing this podcast recording right now, or we couldn't guarantee it if I was in, in Lebanon, because there could be there could be a power cut. So I think it it really just affects so many different aspects of daily life and just adds a huge amount of unpredictability to even those who are better off. And then to those who are worse off, um, I mean, more than half of the population in Lebanon now lives under the poverty line, according to estimates. I just saw a case of a Lebanese family moving into a refugee camp um, to live alongside Syrians because they could no longer afford to rent a uh, an apartment. And so they had to, basically, it was their only option other than being completely homeless was to, to live in uh, essentially tents um, and informal structures alongside, alongside Syrians. So... I think it is affecting everyone in Lebanon to some degree, um, but there are some parts of life which have become basically impossible, um, and there are other bits which somehow are, are still continuing. So I think our audience would also like to hear about an update about the massive port explosion that shook Lebanon's capital, Beirut, uh, almost a year ago, it made a it made a ton of headlines, causing billions of dollars of damage, taking hundreds of lives, and leveling entire parts of the city. How has this recovery process from this blast been going? And are parts of Beirut still destroyed? So, yes, parts of Beirut are still uh, completely destroyed. Um, I think a lot of the port still looks like a bomb site. Uh, nearly a year on. Many buildings are still in a state of collapse, especially some of the historic uh, buildings, uh, which um, the, the the which are in the area near the port where the explosion happened. Uh, I was actually talking to a friend of mine who lives in Beirut earlier today, and she said to me that the pavements are still sort of glittering, which might sound like it's beautiful, but that's a result of the tiny fragments of glass from 
those hundreds of thousands of windows that shattered across the city when the blast took place. Um, And I I mean, something else, I I just saw an interview with someone who uh, said that that they were still having surgery to remove pieces of glass from inside their body uh, and that the doctor they spoke to uh, predicted that it would be years until um, each bit of glass um, that had that had um, embedded itself during the during the blast um, would actually be uh, removed. So there was a massive relief effort. Um, that relief effort was not led by the government. It was not led by the state. It was led by civil society groups and volunteers on the ground. Um, they certainly had a lot of international funding to to help uh, those efforts. And I think they were able to uh, help a lot of the people who were made homeless from the from the blast. Uh, and they there were um, teams of, of volunteers who went house house by house, apartment uh, to apartment, uh, sweeping up broken glass and and sort of helping reconstruct doors and things like that. And I think that was an enormous help. Um, and uh, but again, it was it was not led by the government, um, in part because people uh, were so furious with the government and held the government responsible for the blast um, that they didn't want them to then take credit for the uh, cleanup activities and the recovery efforts afterwards. Yeah. So if they weren't involved in like the aid and cleanup afterwards, have they launched? any sort of meaningful investigation into the blast? And if so, have there been any people who have been prosecuted for the crimes related to this blast? Yeah. Um, so the investigation has been quite a saga over the past year. The only people who've actually been arrested uh, were quite low-level officials, uh, people working in the port, customs officials, and some security officials. Uh, but I think a lot of um, Lebanese were really concerned that the blame was going to be shifted towards these people when actually this was an enormous scandal. Um, this ammonium nitrate arrived in Lebanon uh, years and years ago, and successive governments had failed to deal with it as an issue and had failed to um, safe, to, to secure it um, or remove it from the port. Um, and and to prevent this kind of um, catastrophe, um, so they there have been a few judges uh, who have been tried who have tried to lead the uh, the the investigation. The first one uh, charged two former ministers uh, with negligence, and also the current um, acting prime minister as well, Hassan Diab. Uh, but that judge was then removed from the case. Um, the the uh, politicians who'd been charged refused to be questioned, and they then uh, managed to get a court to to remove this judge from the investigation. They claimed that he was uh, not a neutral um, figure in this because his house had been damaged by the explosion. And so then a new judge was um, installed to lead this probe. Um, the new judge has then been trying to question some uh, members of parliament. But the problem is that uh, members of parliament have immunity, um, and so they're not able to be questioned. And 
currently there is some wrangling going on about whether or not Parliament will vote to lift immunity from those um, members who are being uh, charged or, or so, so that they can be questioned before they're charged. Um, the judge also tried to uh, to lift the immunity of um, the head of the uh, security, the internal security um, apparatus. And the caretaker interior minister has just blocked that request and said that this new judge is not going to be able to question them. So what this looks like is really a political class that is closing ranks to protect themselves. They have used red tape, bureaucratic delays, um, and are now trying to find, I think, technicalities um, to make sure that um, none of them are actually held accountable for this. Um, there's one small potential positive step, which is that um, the uh, Tripoli Bar Association, Tripoli is um, not the, the city and not the, the Libyan Tripoli, but a uh, uh, city in northern Lebanon, um, they have lifted the immunity of a former minister called Yusuf Fenianos. Uh, and because he doesn't currently hold political office, um, he has there, there's no more immunity that he can hide behind, so he can theoretically now be questioned. The problem is, again, the members of parliament are saying, oh, actually, they should create a new court, a parliamentary court, which should do the, the questioning and which should take over this investigation. And again, that looks like an effort to uh, to draw out the process and make sure that no one faces um, true accountability. So that was a very long answer to your question. But essentially, no, there has been almost no meaningful investigation and um, no one senior has been prosecuted for the crimes um, related to the past. Will, I'm, I'm wondering, beyond the economic crisis and the port explosion itself, there's also been this longstanding political crisis in Lebanon since the port explosion. Um, I believe the, the previous cabinet resigned. And I was wondering, could you just talk to our listeners about like what that political crisis has looked like for the past almost year? Yeah, so I I think actually this is the or it's about to be the longest period that Lebanon has gone without a government in its history as an independent state since it since it gained independence um, after uh, French uh, colonization. So this is yeah essentially a year without a government now, and I think to sort of understand why that uh, why a government hasn't formed, you have to sort of go back and zoom out a bit and look at Lebanon's political system. So after the Lebanese civil war, uh, there was an agreement um, called the Ta'if Accords, which set up a system which would be a sort of power sharing agreement between some of the main sectarian groups in Lebanon. So the president is always a Maronite Christian. Um, this, the president at the moment is Michel Aoun, who is something of a dinosaur. He's an 87-year-old, I think the second or third oldest head of state in, in the world. Uh, the prime minister is always a Sunni Muslim. Um, and then the speaker of parliament is always a Shi'i Muslim. Um, and that is currently uh, someone called Nabih Barri, who is from an, a movement called AMO. So... There's this power sharing agreement 
And then the governments are always a coalition um, between the many different uh, factions that make up the political landscape in Lebanon. And these uh, factions are often shifting and alliances are shifting. So there um, will frequently be governments that form quite a wide array of, of political parties and also uh, sectarian groupings. And uh, this, I think, usually they, they would have been able to, to form an agreement um, and, and, and uh, have, have created a new government. But one of the problems is that in October 2019, there were massive protests in the streets of Lebanon. Um, massive anti-government protests and anti-political establishment protests. And people were chanting for an end to this sectarian system and for politicians to be held responsible for their corruption, for their mismanagement, um, the things I mentioned before that contributed to the economic collapse. And so since then, um, they the, the new prime ministers or the prime minister designates have been trying to form cabinets that are made up of technical experts, technocrats, um, which are not formally uh, politicians and technically don't have a political affiliation. Although in reality, um, these uh, these ministers in, in the cabinet are still nominated by different political factions and so bear a strong allegiance to them. And so... Uh, there has been a huge amount of wrangling over who would, which technical experts would form um, this, the lineup of the government. And in, in particular, I think an, an issue has, um, has, has proven to be a, a real uh, obstacle is that Michel Aoun, the president, um, wants his uh, block to have a blocking third of cabinet members. So he wants to have a third of, or, or to be able to have him and his allies uh, to take up a third of the members of the cabinet so that theoretically then they can block anything that infringes on their status. And for Maronite Christians and for Christians in particular in Lebanon, um, this idea of protecting their status is a big issue because the demographics of Lebanon are changing and the Christian uh, population is declining and the Muslim population is growing, both Sunni and Shia uh, Muslim communities growing. Um, and Christians are, Christian political leaders are very keen to maintain their political influence in the country despite this uh, decreasing uh, share of the population that their constituents make up. So they're very keen for this blocking third. Now, the prime minister who was uh, designated to, to um, form a government, Saad Hariri, who was the former prime minister as well, uh, he tried um, again and again, and, and he basically, they um, he and Michel Aoun failed to come to a, any kind of compromise. And for 10 months, um, this these negotiations continued, and then he... He just gave up and stood down. Um, so now uh, we're in a place where a new um, politician has been designated uh, to try and form a government, and that's Najib Miati. And so, Will, tell us a little bit about Najib Miati and and 
tell us, do we think that he may be able to form the government that can overcome this, the president's demand for a third of, of the parliament seats? Is, will he have more success in doing so? Or do you think kind of what's the outlook? I mean, I think this is this is the the big question right now in 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 Lebanon. Um, to answer your your first question about sort of who he is, so he is uh, the third prime minister who's been tasked with forming a government since the blast last August. He is probably the richest man in Lebanon. He is a billionaire, a telecoms magnate from Tripoli in northern Lebanon, which is actually the the poorest uh, city in, in Lebanon, um, sort of ironically. Um, this would is his third stint as prime minister. He was first appointed in 2005, and then he was appointed again in 2011. Um, and I think the hope is that he will form a cabinet swiftly. And I think if he doesn't, then he may well step down. But there are real doubts about, um, well, I suppose one is whether or not he'll be able to form a government. Um, But then two is, will the Lebanese people accept him as prime minister? And is he who they want as their prime minister? Now, the reason I say that is because he was previously charged with corruption. He was uh, alleged to have misused uh, subsidized housing loans and was charged in 2019 after those protests broke out that I that I just mentioned. Um, those, um, those charges didn't go anywhere, and he is uh, still around. Um, but I think there are real doubts as to is a... Um, multi-billionaire businessman um, who has previously been prime minister twice and is very firmly a part of this political establishment, is he the person who is going to get the change that uh, Lebanese really want? Uh, they People chanted in the streets, uh, which means all of them means all of them. They wanted everyone to go. All of the uh, political leaders who have been in, um, involved in, in Lebanon's mismanagement and corruption, um, and um, he is yeah certainly not who they want. I mean, he he recently just said uh, Lebanon is in a hole. Rather than saying who got us here, who got us into this hole, um, we want accountability. We should be saying let's get out the hole first. So he clearly has no intention of seeking any kind of accountability against, um, I mean, his peers, really. The, these are these are his, his former colleagues um, in the political class. So I think appointing him is really seen as an attempt to buy time um, by the political establishment in, in Lebanon. Um, he does have some more, I think, support than the previous two candidates who were appointed to to become prime minister, Hassan Diab and then Saad Hariri. Um, he got more votes than them. But he, um, I mean, he, he still faces many of the, the same challenges, whether or not he's prepared to acquiesce to this, um, to, to allowing Michel Aoun to have a blocking third. Um, we shall see. I, I suspect he's more amenable to that because I think he wants to form a government quickly uh, and 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 thinks that that is the first um, 
the first step. But then does he truly want change? Does he want the reforms that the international community are calling for? I think I think probably not. I mean, that this crisis is ultimately uh, about how to distribute losses from the banking system. And he has really significant interests in that regard. He previously fought the IMF plan uh, for, for Lebanon. So is he going to suddenly accept it now? I don't think so. So kind of looking at this international community, recently the European Union announced it would draft a list of sanctions to impose on the Lebanese government if it doesn't adapt any um, economic reforms to stem this crisis. What role should and will um, international actors play in pushing Lebanon toward reform and stemming its economic collapse? So... I think the international community has tried wielding carrots and that hasn't worked, so is now trying to wield sticks. So ultimately, what the, the kinds of reforms that international actors are, are trying to um, seek are sort of financial stabilization uh, and then the introduction of anti-corruption measures and more accountability mechanisms. Um, they have dangled billions of dollars in much needed aid uh, as an incentive to Lebanese politicians to begin implementing these reforms. Um, they held a conference called the SED uh, conference in 2018, which offered literally billions of dollars in exchange for these reforms. And we're, what, nearly three years later, and there has been no progress whatsoever. So I think that has not worked. So now they're trying to trying to start wielding sticks. And yeah, the EU has said that by the end of this month, by the end of July, um, they will have a sanctions regime in place, and then they will start designating individual Lebanese politicians um, and hitting them with asset freezes, with travel bans, and whatnot. But I think the chances of this working are unfortunately quite slim. So um, a lot of Lebanese politicians have multiple passports, uh, multiple nationalities, and um, they have assets all over uh, the place. And so I think freezing their assets in Europe may not um, necessarily work, even imposing a travel ban. If I mean, France imposed a travel ban on some of them. Um, but then there were still photos of, of some of these people shopping in Nice and Paris. And I think they had either flown in on another passport or uh, flown into Italy and then just crossed the border or something like that. Uh, they're, they're, they're not that, um, I, I think that the prospect of them really changing politicians' calculations is relatively slim. And there are also some risks in this approach as well. If you, um, they will have to decide, the European Union will have to decide which politicians they're actually going to sanction. And if they do some and not others, then you risk, I think, altering the political balance uh, potentially in a negative way. And uh, so I think it's a the sanctions approach is is tricky and is probably not likely to to bring about any kind of quick 
uh, change in in Lebanese politicians' behavior. But then the international community ultimately has a, a really big problem. I mean, they don't want to work through the government because they don't want to reward them for uh, the stalling and the refusal to implement these reforms. But they don't really have empowered interlocutors to negotiate with. Uh, and and if they're trying to circumvent the government, and so they uh, sort of funnel support through uh, local groups, like they did with the response to the blast explosion, they then also, I think, run a risk of creating a kind of parallel system to the Lebanese state, uh, which is ultimately unelected and unaccountable. Uh, so I think there's no, there's really no um, kind of uh, sort of silver bullet here. Um, there are no easy options for the for the international community, um, and ultimately the, the government is really benefiting from the status quo. There was a uh, an investigation by Reuters. Uh, which found that Lebanese banks had swallowed um, at least $250 million in UN aid, which was intended for uh, refugees, for Syrian and Palestinian refugees, and also for poor Lebanese since 2019 uh, because of bad exchange rates. So the government sort of forced them to pay this money in um, dollars and then paid it out in uh, Lebanese lira, but at the at the rate that the that the bank and the government decided, not the real exchange rate, which meant that they were able to sort of skim a huge amount off the top. So you have, I mean, you really have a situation where incentives haven't worked, sticks probably aren't going to work, and the current and the status quo just further enriches the government. So unfortunately, I think it is incredibly difficult for uh, any kind of international actor to help shift Lebanon into a more positive place. I think one thing they can do is try and provide uh, some more information into the um, corruption of the Lebanese political elite. I mean, we're seeing some signs of this already. There are investigations in France and Switzerland into the uh, chair of the, the head of the central bank in Lebanon. And I think highlighting the corruption and potentially even charging these people abroad could be a positive step. Um, and then I think also trying to look for some of these uh, groups and voices in Lebanon that are pushing for reform and trying to boost them um, in preparation for the parliamentary elections, which are due to happen next May. And then I think the hope is that more independent uh, politicians will be elected who will be more uh, open to reforms, um, and and but I think it's going to be a, a slow process. And unfortunately, in the meantime, Lebanon is likely to um, further deteriorate. Will you did just talk about this, touch on this at the end of end of your last response there? But we like to kind of end our podcast with a kind of bigger thinking question that's always always kind of forward facing. So based on what we've talked about through the podcast, it seems so you said the World Bank has labeled Lebanon's economic crisis as a deliberate crisis created by the political elite. There's been little meaningful investigation into the port blast as politicians close ranks to protect themselves. And forming a government has been deeply difficult because 
of factionalism and the prime minister candidate that is now chosen has been charged in corruption inquiry in the past. And also the international community doesn't seem to really be effectively able to step in. So from my outsider perspective, this seems like a a truly broken political system. Can it be reformed? And then I guess if not, are there really any viable paths out of Lebanon's current crisis um, under the system, under the current system? So I think it's really difficult to be optimistic when we look at at Lebanon uh, today. Um, But there are some signs of that I think we can we can try and sort of pinpoint and, and and amplify that things might be changing. So I think Firstly, I think on August the 4th, which is going to be the anniversary of the explosion, there are likely to be massive, massive protests in in Lebanon, um, in Beirut and across the country. And I think it's possible that if there's enough pressure from the street uh, that um, politicians may be forced to sort of change, change some of their behavior. There are also a few signs that independent candidates may be making some gains. So uh, there, there haven't been national elections in Lebanon for some time, but if you look at uh, student elections or elections for professional associations and unions, recently, actually, independent candidates have been doing really well. And um, this is, I suppose, a slightly sort of strange system, perhaps for a for a U.S. audience. But in Lebanon, um, the the student elections often quite closely mirror the political makeup of the country. So all the major political parties will have affiliated student organizations, and these people run in the elections. Now, independent candidates have won uh, a huge majority of these seats, which shows that I think younger people are fed up and are not prepared to. Uh, go along with the system that um, their parents have have been subjected to and 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 before them. So I think it's possible that independent candidates may do better and that some of these sources of pressure may force politicians to um, yeah to, to to change their calculations. But ultimately, I think, one of the main obstacles in Lebanon is that for the political for the political class, they view this as an existential struggle. Um, as I've said, I think a few times um, in this in this interview, I've said they've sort of closed ranks and they ultimately come out to protect each other. Even people who are certainly not political allies, um, but they still fear that if there's accountability for some, then that might spread and then they themselves may be held accountable as well. So it's this system which is sort of a, a mafia that that runs Lebanon um, that is really, really difficult to break. They've got a, a strong grip on, on the country. And so I think looking forward, Unfortunately, life is is going to continue to be incredibly difficult for people living in Lebanon. I think those who are able to leave the country, um, well, many of them have already done so, but I think that will continue to happen, whether that's uh, traveling abroad um, sort of by plane or even, I think, seeing people attempting the really dangerous route from northern Lebanon to Cyprus by boat. Um, I think we're likely to see Syrian refugees coming to the calculation that actually life might be better for them in Syria 
than it than it is in in Lebanon, which is given how things are in Syria, just a an unimaginable choice, I think. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm sorry to end on this note, but I think things are are probably going to continue to get worse for some time. Um, but hopefully, the parliamentary elections will be held as scheduled in May 2022, and hopefully that might be a chance for actual change. Well, Will, we want to thank you immensely for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure hearing from you, and I'm sure our listeners have, have learned a lot through this conversation. So thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.